Hello everyone, it's Adasha Townsend of the Feast and Fashion Podcast. I'm a veteran food and beverage journalist who's worked with some of the most notable media outlets in the world. Feast and Fashion is the intersection of food and fashion, one beautiful plate or glass at a time. With each episode, I will introduce you to fascinating, fabulous people in the culinary industry. Today, Eric Williams joins me. He's the executive chef and co-owner of Chicago's Virtue Restaurant, and today we are meeting in person at Soho House Chicago. We engage in a provocative and candid conversation about race, the progress of Southern American cuisine, and much more. Here's our conversation. I'm always interested in why you named one of your desserts, We Finally Got a Piece of Pie. Well, that dessert is inspired by the Jeffersons. And in the song, the last line is, we finally got a piece of the pie. And the song is, it starts, we're moving on up to the sky, to a deluxe department. And there's been all this conversation around getting a seat at the table. And if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. It's like all these cliches around the table as a result to being a decision maker or being in the conversation. And so I take maybe a satire approach to managing that space because I don't fully buy into it. I understand the importance of the song with the Jeffersons. They lived in a high rise and a predominantly, in a time when uh, uh, black folk didn't have a lot of access to wealth and access to opportunity. George Jefferson was this overtly bigot, this overt bigot that owned a, a cleaners in the neighborhood for those that wouldn't know. and. It was kind of the response to Archie Bunker, who was an everyday white guy that was also a bigot. And um, that was that was TV back then. Now, you know, bigotry is managed different ways, but it's not satire and it's, it's not made fun of, it's just in your face. When you interpret, we finally got a piece of the pie, how do you interpret that on your menu? We like the puns. We just like the puns. I mean, there's there's a there's a drink on our menu that's called Border Patrol. There was another one that was called um, the Orchard on the other side of the wall, the Orchard over the wall, because it can only have so many words. So it was the Orchard over the wall. Okay. And they're usually mezcal or tequila drinks, and they usually speak to current affairs. And we we just we like to we like to play around with um, current affairs, bring attention to things in a very subtle way. Sometimes in a very uh, um, obvious way about the times that we live in and, and, and how people view them. Uh, back to that pie, uh, I'm going to assume that it's a rotating pie, that it's seasonal or something like that. Talk about that seasonal aspect of, of the pie. So there are a few things on the menu that have not rotated out. Our banana pudding is one of those things. Um, there are other items on the savory menu that have found a place as well. But part of the scratch and our creative itch is change. Embracing a new challenge, approaching a thing a new way, that makes us happy. It makes us really, really happy. And so as it plays into historical context, there are a lot of chefs who believe that they were the first ones to town with 
there's so many ways to say it now. Um, farm the table, farm the fork, soil the table. I mean, pick one. I would dispute many of the chefs, the modern day chefs, to say they were the first to introduce it in their respective communities because my ancestors were the first to introduce Southern cooking and a seasonal approach because people cook to the seasons. I mean, that's just, they didn't have refrigeration. So there, there was no freezer to pull something out of. What they did do is they canned. And canning, canning is omitted from the statement of farm to table or any of the others. So if I serve... Because when people think of farm to table, they're always thinking of fresh ingredients. Like thinking of just yes. picked straight from the farm. People always think... I, I they, do notice that, that they yes. don't notice that they discount the canning stuff. They totally do. The preservative stuff. Yes. So, so I could serve spring ramps on the coldest day of winter. Because if they are, what if they're pickled ramps. Okay. And nobody is saying, oh my God, what a throwback. He's so not farm to table. Like, that's not a thing. But if I was serving fresh ramps from some foreign land in December, people would be like, you know, this guy, does this guy know what season it is? He's wondering why is he still serving ramps? So that was the way people cooked. And, you know, tomatoes were preserved in the height of the season. As, as anything else would have been, so that people had food, not just fresh ingredients or delicious ingredients, but food throughout the year. Hams weren't smoked because it was a good idea and people love ham so much. It was a necessity. Smoked salmon, as we know it, is a fan favorite at most brunches and, and a lot of lunches. But smoked salmon came out of necessity. It did not come out of this idea that like an artisan wanted to make fresh salmon better or wanted to lend more flavor to it. And so I guess the long of it, is, I mean the short of it is, preserve foods, ways to preserve food, and seasonality has gone on for a much longer time than many of us have been around to remember. And we feel the same way about around desserts, right? A lot of dessert is made from natural fruit sugars as opposed to just opening the bag of sugar and dumping in a bunch of sugar into a thing. You know, chocolate has a space where it's, it's seasonal any time of the year. Like, who doesn't love se- um, chocolate all four seasons? But things that have fruit preserves, compotes, or fruit is the star of the show in any form, they are usually done in season with exception of preservatives again. Apple butter is one of them. Apple butter is delicious all time of year. It's delicious in your cocktail. It's delicious on your dessert. It's delicious on your pork chop. And it's delicious on your chicken and waffles if you haven't tried that yet. That sounds so good. Yeah, apple butter. Randy apple butter with chicken and waffles. Oh my goodness. Now, your knowledge of all of this culinary history, particularly to Southern Black Americans, is this from intense research? Is it from talking to your your relatives? How did you gain all this knowledge about what our ancestors and people did before they migrated to Chicago? How did you get all this stuff? So I humbly admit that there's still so much more for me to learn. However, it is a um, culmination of everything you just named. I traveled. I traveled through the South quite a bit. What part? What parts exactly? Like there, there aren't any parts that I don't. The only place that I haven't spent 
time in is Mississippi because I'm always traveling through. I hear Mississippi is really, really great. Where are your people I'm, from? My, my family is from part of, well, you know, when you marry or when they marry, right, then your people come from, come from different parts. So we've got New Orleans, Kentucky, Mississippi. I believe there's some Memphis. But my paternal side of the family has a fairly good amount of uh, roots in Mississippi. Okay, what part? Um, I don't know, because I didn't go. They forbode me from going when I was a kid. I, I wasn't allowed to um, go to Mississippi when I was a kid. Um, Where'd you go as a kid? I stayed in Chicago. I wasn't allowed to go to Mississippi. My, my family was forever changed after Emmett Till. And I had Were no your idea. Were family still down there, or had they migrated to the majority? My of family had migrated there? to Chicago. My immediate family had migrated to Chicago. We still had family members that I could have went and saw. But as a result of Emmett Till's uh, death, murder for murder. Yes. I'm so sorry because I just talked about that today. Yes. Um, as a result of Emmett Till's murder, as a slog, as a as a young black boy, they did not want you to go there. They just had thoughts about. Oh, they didn't have thoughts. They had they had extremely strong views and boundaries, and they literally forbade me from going to Mississippi. My mother explicitly said to me, "You will not see Mississippi in your lifetime unless I am with you or you are an adult and you go on your own." And my mother did not go to Mississippi until I was an adult, and unfortunately, we weren't together. What parts of uh, the South have you been? Did you go to as a child? Did you go anywhere during the summers? I didn't go place? South in the summers at all. I hung out in Chicago. Okay. They kept me active in the great city of Chicago. Okay. And then as I as I got into food, then I started spending time in the regular spaces like New Orleans, hitting spots throughout Louisiana, and my quest to understand more and to view experience or have experiential understanding of things like where King was killed and or actually we went to Nashville. My first introduction was to Nashville was because I was doing a dinner there and then later I was invited back to do other dinners. So education, understanding and food um, really sparked my travels and then created a more in-depth understanding of what took place around what time. The travel told parts of the story that aren't often spoken of, like black contribution in food. Why do you think it's taken so long for that to be really recognized? And when I say that, I mean, like, if you give an example, like a few years ago, they were only giving James Beard Awards to classics. They weren't, I feel like they weren't considering black-owned restaurants for the big awards. So why do you think they're finally now starting to do this? When I say James, I mean James Beard and Michelin and, you know, so on and so forth. Why are they starting to look at our food, taking it as serious as French cuisine and Mexican and Asian and so on and so forth? We've gone a long time believing that French cookery is the foundation to cooking. And the French have certainly done an amazing job of cataloging technique, ingredient use, and structures in professional kitchens. Most chefs that are classically trained have read and learned about a scopier. And 
may adopt a practice or two in their kitchens. However, it's not the foundation of cooking. We have seven continents. Like, France is not more important from a gastronomical approach than any other country. And the unique thing about American food is Africans were a huge population in this country, hence the fact that when it came time for us to be recognized, uh, we were recognized as three-fifths because they felt like it would be unfair if we were recognized as a whole person. And we were the keepers of technique and the keepers of ingredient bases and the keepers of procedure in kitchens for many, many years in this country. And remember, we were the keepers of these things without a knowledge of what we would call colonized language. So we were not allowed to read and write in the English right in English language. So this was all done through memory and whatever exposure we had to food and our native land. And so then all of a sudden the food starts to change because we are left in survival state to manage these ingredients based on what we already possess and what people are giving us, right, by way of visual instruction and verbal instruction on how to do a thing, right? And there are some things in this country that we immediately impacted, like the fact that Louisiana is swampland, the current settlers had no real understanding how to grow crops, couldn't grow the corn that we understood how to grow from the natives because of how wet the lands were. But what you could grow is rice. And it was Africans that taught Americans how to grow that rice. And we were the keepers of that process. And it became part of trade. So I don't I don't blame the James Beard Foundation or any foundation in particular for not doing what we would consider a better job of identifying black talent or Hispanic talent, any of the talents. At some point, our community, which it has recently, has to demand the culinary community. Culinary community. Right, the hospitality community has now begun to demand more equity. And that needed to happen. We are the ones that are the supporters of these foundations. We are the ones whose talent and energy give them place. It's not the Oscars' job to identify more African-American talent. It's the artist's job to insist that if you want my contribution, then you will need to treat us like everyone else. And so I think so many times we want the institution to fix itself. Yeah. But the institution is made up of people. Mere mortals is just made up of people. And so it takes the larger group of thinking people, progressive people, to move things forward. So I want to get into how, from your studies and from your observations with predecessors, how did the cuisine that we know as Southern and soul food in Chicago, how did it come here? How did it get here? 
and uh, has it been bastardized? I, I know that you have your way of doing it, and there's a lot of other people who have their way of doing the food of our heritage in Chicago, but how did it get to the way it is right now? It got to Chicago by way of the migration. It got to the north in general by way of the migration. And we could spend a whole hour talking about just the migration. However, we understand that migration as the biggest pilgrimage north in history by freed slaves, refugee slaves, because you know the migration was, was happening before, before the migration was starting to be documented. Um, as states started to lift their, their to positions lift. Sorry to hit on lips. slavery. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, bastard is an interesting word because we all know bastard to be a fatherless child, the child of one parent. Two created the child, but only one is left with the burden of rearing, raising, nurturing, providing for said child. So, I find it difficult to talk about a thing without really talking about what it is. So at the core of the matter, we're talking about food that's been reared, that's been grown, that has been nourished, cared for with one parent. So then if that is the case, we're only telling one side of the story. So we tell the settler side of the story, the folks who brought pigs to America, the Asians, the folk that brought saffron to Louisiana, the Spaniards, the folk that brought pasta to the Americas, and then so on and so forth. Just pick any technique and then pick an ingredient. And the story is not just told with a high level of enthusiasm, but also revered. But we're only going to share one side of the story. And we, we like to omit the fact that they didn't cook their own food. None of the settlers cooked their own food because they owned slaves. And if they owned slaves, then then their servants were the ones that were their cooks. Right. Right. And the yeah. ones who grew their food and preserved their food and handled and managed their land. And so if that is the case, then the bigger question is, why are we omitting that part of the story. I mean, we don't want, as a country, to talk about slavery. There's a lot of great things to talk about when you start talking about black folks cooking. But are we afraid that, you know, we're going to give black people too much credit? Or if we, because I'm going back and forth here, if we we tell people that there was this guy who created the remote control, like, do we think Zenith is going to lose popularity? I mean, like, I don't don't understand what goes in the mind of the person. They just don't want to give credit. They're right. And so, so now we've gotten to a place where people are angry and hurt and confused and downright tired of being omitted from the story. And, you know, that's what time does to, to a thing. So it, it changes it. it, changes its complexity. If, if, if it lasts long enough, it changes its density. You know, something that might not have been extremely hard can get really hard over time. And I believe for black folks, our position has gotten really hard. And there's some things we're just not going back to. So in migrating to Chicago, when black folks migrated to Chicago, they used all these fresh ingredients when they were down south. 
and when they migrated to Chicago, those fresh ingredients weren't always readily available because a lot of them live in apartments. A lot of them did not own homes. The majority of them did not own homes, so they could not have their own gardens. So what were people doing, and is that how they got into, I mean, here's a thought, I mean, were they going down south and preserving this food and then bringing it up north and canning it themselves and jarring it and that type of thing? I mean, what were, do, you, do you know anything about that? So there's one thing I'd like to read to you first, and it's an African proverb. I love proverbs. And the proverb states... Until the lion <laughs> learns how to write, every story will glorify the hunter. Mm. Now remember, we were kept from writing and reading. So that, I think, in a much shorter phrase, centuries, tells you why only one side of the story is being told. Um, I think the lion would have a lot to say if they could write and or talk. But the hunter keeps coming back telling us what what really happened, right? Um, And so we've been the prey, unfortunately, far too long. Now we're learning how to use our pen and our voice. When we moved to the north, we moved with those techniques, with that deep understanding of how to work with our hands, how to create food. However, once we got here, the work was different. The cook didn't spend the day in the kitchen working with food to feed multiple families. That cook's day could have been split with either providing food for the family physically or providing means for food for the family by taking on jobs like housekeeping, babysitting. Um, at one point, we were work- women were working in factories and warehouses Um, due to the war. Men who also cooked for a period of time in the South, uh, maybe not as long as women, but did at some point, were now definitely trying to take jobs and sanitation and all the, any job that that we were allowed. Rail car porters and so on and so forth. History proves all of this. Um, And as time was shortened, by the immense amount of work we had to do because we got paid less than everybody else. Right, and worked longer hours. And worked longer hours. Then um, there wasn't the same ability to grow our own food as readily. Um, We live in dense populated situations where there's multiple people in a house. A lot of of these places were, um, uh, a lot of the the living conditions were apartments. And, you know, at least if you live in a house, you could convert your backyard or any yard um, to a garden. But in an apartment, there's just not enough land density to allow for that. And then the big thing is, food has always had a cost, and we did not control those costs. So whereas... You may have been eating fresh fish because you in got it the yourself. south in the Mississippi, right? Because either you caught it or you had scraps thereof. In the north, it was we, you know, we had gotten to a point where we were canning products, and so I grew up. I mean, for many years of my life, I had never seen fresh salmon. It was it was can, canned salmon, and it was served as salmon croquettes. 
I, I, I was removed from the... Is that a black thing? Salmon croquettes? Um, I've never seen anyone else eat it, and I've never seen anyone else um, make it the way we make it. And then, I don't know if it's a black thing, it's a southern thing. Okay. You know, because southern is not all black. Right. We can argue over who cooks the best if we want to try to have a race argument over cooking, but, but when it's all said and done, the Gus's fried chicken is Gus's fried chicken for a reason. Um, because, you know, that's a white folk that know how to fry some chicken. Is that, is that white owned? Huh? Gus, Gus's is white owned? I don't think Gus's is black owned. Now we I've can, never had it. We can, it's delicious. But I had Uncle Remus's for the first time ever a few weeks ago, and I was like, how have I never had this before? That's, that's a whole Holy different thing. God. How much pressure do you feel that you should be sort of a leader in the culinary community? And I'm not just, I just don't mean the black culinary community, but I mean the culinary community at large how much pressure do you feel to be a leader i don't feel any pressure that that's not the pressure i feel the pressure i feel is the pressure to make sure that i leave something for my child and that my my family's well-being is secure that's that's where pressure lies when you work hard over a period of time and you're consistent if people aren't inconsistent i mean if people are inconsistent you inevitably end up in front. If everybody around you is consistent, then you guys all move forward together. But if you're working hard on a project and there is any kind of advancement, that's kind of the basis of progress. And progress looks like it moved further than it was the day before. So my concern is not as much leadership. My concern is really progress. I don't need to be the head of any campaign. I don't need to be the spokesperson of, of any movement. What I insist upon is being part of the solution and not part of the problem. Well, that does it for this episode. I want to thank my guest, Chef Eric Williams, again for joining me. We're back next Friday with another outstanding, talented, and of course, stylish culinary personality you don't want to miss. Thank you so much for listening to Feast and Fashion on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm your host, Adasha Townsend. Meet me back here next Friday.